Welcome to Money Management, a weekly look at the art and science of investing. Now, here's your host, Mike Mayle. Good morning. <laughs> I guess uh, Spokane has become the uh, capital of partly cloudy here. It looks like it's going to be continuing that way for the next few days. But while you're there uh, dealing with the snow, let me uh, try and give you some insights into what happened in the markets this past week, as well as some thoughts about what may be going forward from here and some thoughts uh, about perhaps how you might want to consider doing some uh, fine tuning of your portfolios. Now, I want to talk about manufacturing activity because, you know, everybody say, oh, it's terrible. Continue to slow as 2019 came to a close. That's according to a survey from uh, a group called the Institute for Supply Management. Now, um, understand that the index is calculated by a survey of people purchasing managers. And oftentimes uh, they can be more swayed by what happened in the headlines than what's going on in the real world. So I think you ought to take a, a lot of these uh, surveys with a bit of a grain of salt because the index has dipped uh, earlier in the recovery without signaling a recession on three different occasions in 2012, once in 13 and five for five consecutive months between 2015 and 16. And each time, yes, indeed, the economy kept growing. So, you know, we expect a return to growth in the months ahead uh, simply because this data doesn't match with what we're seeing from other reports. And, of course, while so much attention is given to the manufacturing index uh, due to its dipping, the service sector, the much larger, larger service sector, like 70% of our economy, continues to show solid growth. The Institute for Supply Management Non-Manufacturing Index grew more than expected last month. Um, the chair of the Institute of Supply Management says respondents are positive about the potential resolution on tariffs. They do have continued difficulty with labor resources. And I want to talk about that because yesterday they were saying to the uh, headline writers, Dow falls amid lackluster jobs data. Now let's hold that thought, okay? The economy added 145,000 jobs last month. Now we've been adding about 180. So they go, oh, that's terrible. But the unemployment rate stayed at a 50-year low of 3.5%. So that's 10 straight years of payroll gains and the longest stretch in 80 years of data that the Labor Department's can been completed. So now here's the catch. If this jobs report is so bad, why are they still 477,000 jobs open as of October, most recent period? And that's only 5% fewer than a year ago. Now, here's where the real problem lies. 62% of construction firms say they report few or no qualified applicants. Manufacturing says 63%, few or no qualified applicants. And they're saying that um, construction folks say 46% uh, say the shortage of qualified labor is their top business problem. Twenty-four percent in the manufacturing area. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't understand these people who are saying, "Oh, bad jobs data." There's not enough jobs for people who are qualified. If they're not qualified, sorry about that. I mean, <laughs> there's, I don't know what to say, but uh, there's plenty of jobs, and the economy continues very strong in terms of the overall uh, job situation. Now, let me uh, hit the market because, you know, 
somebody wrote, I said this, I just thought it, would, it tickled me. He said, the market had a Persian shrug. Um, you got to think, not a drop of oil supply has been affected. Investors seem particularly eager to get back into the tech stock party. The actions of tens of millions of investors have said the quote-unquote hysteria about Iran from uh, a few hundred pundits and politicians of dubious uh, quality is completely overblown. Now, the reality is this Iranian regime has no allies. They got no friends. They're sputtering on fumes economically and have good reason to fear a bigger conflict with us. Now, conspicuous by their absence, in my opinion, now, I'm a Marine, and so I look at things perhaps a little strangely, but the um, <laughs> the talking heads in Iran, are, uh, they haven't been on TV lately. I wonder if they're hiding out somewhere, you know, so they don't get to be on TV. So uh, what's really happened is just rapid changes in perceptions. There was no change in facts. Why? That's why the market kept moving higher. Friday, we had a few selling programs come in. That's why when we hit the uh, the records and then, uh, we had the weekend, and so the traders, because they aren't very brave in that regard, decided to take some positions, uh, take some profits from the positions that they've run up over the last few weeks, and uh, that was that. Now, in an earlier time, the risk of war between us and Iran would likely have sent these oil prices just taken off like a scalded dog and, you know, re and it would have hit our economy. But when the news broke late last week about that Iranian general's going away party, well, oil prices only rose a modest 3%. And today, actually, they're back below where they were the day before the strike. Well, what's, what's the main reason for that? One word, fracking. Or if you want the whole, the, re, the real term, hydraulic fracturing. That's com the, the drilling technique with horizontal drilling and other tech advances has unlocked more oil in more places across our country. Mideast is, yeah, absolutely, still a crucial source of supply for global markets. But thanks to our domestic production, we're now largely self-sufficient. Our shale re revolution is the result of private investment, risk-taking, and innovation. Government planners never saw this coming, and most of the political class, for reasons I'm totally unaware of and really can't understand, was and is hostile to it. In fact, we now export more crude oil and refined fuels than we import. That's according to the Department of Energy. And for the third month in a row, the dollar value of those exports exceeded the dollar value of petroleum imports. So we're bucks up on the trade. That's pretty good. It might also help <laughs> that our biggest source of improved, imported crude is Canada, number two is Mexico, and the Saudis are way back in number three. The um, Our energy renaissance and the shale revolution has turned us into what they call the marginal oil producers, so that's really put a cap on how high oil can go. One other thought before the break. The Permian Basin in Texas alone, this is not counting Marcellus or any of these guys, but the Permian Basin in Texas alone now produces as much oil as the whole of the United States did just in 2008, and right now more than any OPEC country except Iran and Saudi Arabia. So this, not wind, not solar, which still provide just 2% of the world primary energy, is the big energy story of the last decade. We'll be back with more on that and the outlook and some thoughts about dividends so please come back give us a call 326-9200-800-920-9244 
This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 11 Group, and you're listening to Money Management. Welcome back. Thank you very much for tuning in. And if you do have questions, please take advantage of those phone numbers. Got some a uh, couple comments from some strategists. They were pretty quiet this week. This next week, we'll start seeing um, corporate earnings come out, and I'm sure they'll start uh, massaging those numbers uh, as they tend to do. Anyhow, uh, Ed Yardini, he's a uh, president, chief investment strategist at Yardini Research, and the guy has been around a number of years. He says, our outlook remains optimistic and bullish. Geopolitical crises tend to create buying opportunities in the stock market as long as they don't trigger a recession. Well, okay, no worries there. So we don't, he, he goes on to say, we don't believe that Iran will disrupt oil supply significantly now that the U.S. has demonstrated a willingness to use lethal force to determine, excuse me, to deter Iran's mischief making in the Middle East, unquote. Uh, Savita Subramanian, she's head of U.S. Equity and Quant Strategy at uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, says geopolitical shocks have historically led to sharp pullbacks in stocks, with the S&P declining 6 to 7% on average in the wake of events. She believes the pullback this time will be in line with historical average before recovering later this year. Well, okay. Now, Michael Sembalist, he's chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. He said that a progressive overhaul of the U.S. economy after the election would be among the biggest perils in the marketplace, unquote. Now, Morgan Stanley, I guess we can see where they send their contributions. They say Morgan Stanley has some advice for investors. Being reactive is probably better than being proactive. I'm not sure what that, why they would say that. But in any case, they go on to say, and I'm quoting, don't assume a Democrat victory would be bad. Accordingly, it would be wise to wait until the election and then allocate it to seems fit at that time. The other thing to bear in mind is that a Democratic sweep could be surprisingly good for stocks, according to Morgan Stanley. They say we would expect that a Democratic sweep in 2020 could deliver the greatest impulse to the economy because of its greater odds of bringing a fiscal stimulus when the government is divided between parties. Well, that could be a program all by itself, but um, anyway, we'll save that for another time. You know, Bill Gates, you know, that guy over in Seattle, he said, uh, headlines in a way are what mislead you because bad news is a headline. Gradual improvement isn't. So let me t sing you a song of gradual improvement, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course. Uh, the longest economic re recovery on record continues. January is the 128th consecutive month of growth. The first seven years from 09 through 16 saw average real GDP growth of just 2.2%. Now, since the start of 17, U.S. real GDP growth has jumped to an average of 2.6%, and the unemployment, national unemployment rate now stands at the lowest level in 50 years, and I think probably could go lower. This market is starting to hunt almost ruthlessly for reliable, durable cash flow streams. Max liquidity, minimal growth, explains the bullish price action, ongoing leadership from high-yield credit and U.S. growth stocks. Mega-cap growth stocks have lifted off relative to the rest of the market already again this year. The NASDAQ last year, dominated by Microsoft and Apple, stretched higher by 35%. 
and it's up more than 4% in the past 20 days, and the average stock in the S&P has been flat. Well, so you're going for, they're looking for stocks that have predictable, what they call uh, moat. In other words, it's hard to get into their business. It's, it's predictable growth going forward. And we know that stocks uh, remain as risk assets, and U.S. government bonds, specifically one-month T-bills, are often referred to as risk-free. But the absence of risk can be very costly if your goal is to outpace inflation, say, for retirement purposes or any other long-term goal. And that's why you take risk in the first place. Now, uh, under the heading of no kidding, from 1933 to 2001, that's for U.S. T-bills, and for Treasury bonds, which are 10 years and more in length, Treasury bonds from 1940 to 1991, negative real returns. That means that after tax, after inflation, you are upside down. And those are, uh, if you'll pardon the term, risk-free investments. So what does that mean? I think, and I guess uh, we're getting kind of close to the bottom of the hour, so I may defer the longer live uh, comments until after the break, but what I want to talk about is the case for dividends. You know, we've talked about that on the program many times, and it seems like every year over the past 10, many economists, market tea leaf readers have been predicting rising rates, including your humble and obedient servant. But the actual pattern was down more than anything else. In fact, interest rates have been range-bound for most of the past 10 years. Uh, the 10-year yield, and the 10-year U.S. Treasury, again, is the kind of benchmark for everything interest rate-related in the U.S. Uh, mortgages, most loans, all of that stuff. So that's why the 10-year gets talked about uh, most frequently. So the 10-year yield, the 10-year return, began the, uh, 2010 just below 4%. And in July 2016, it hit 1.37. But, you know, rates basically remained in that range between one and a half and three and a half for most of the past 10 years. Now, as we know, rates have been falling since the early 80s. And that's why folks seem to think that bonds are bulletproof, that they can't lose money. Uh, 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 that's a misapprehension, they call that. And seemingly don't ha the rates don't seemingly have much further to fall. So. You know, then I think there is some reason to give credence to these higher calls for higher rates, but the rates haven't cooperated. They're still below 2%. Steve Major, he's uh, HSBC's global head of fixed income research, says lower for longer interest rates are a reality, no longer a forecast. I think Steve's spot on in that regard. Now, a recent study from fund manager Lord Abbott, and Lord Abbott is a huge mutual fund uh, manager who manages both stocks and bond portfolios. They say that dividends historically have provided more income than bonds on the same invested amount, and dividend income and growth is much more reliable and easier to predict and manage than capital appreciation. Well, that kind of makes sense because dividends, typically they raise uh, annually, uh, whereas stock prices can move minutely. So yeah, I think that's a fair, uh, fair determination. So funding for any two-person retirement 
has to be designed to preserve your purchasing power, your buying power, your ability to have your money buy the same amount of quote-unquote stuff in the future as it does now. Now, there's only one financial asset which has demonstrated an income that, at least since 1926, and we got good records, has never, never failed to increase at a greater rate than has the cost of living, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, over all 30-year time horizons. So if you, what that means in American is, is if you say, okay, uh, from 1930 to 1960, from 1931 to 1961, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all in all of those increments, the uh, income has increased at a greater rate than the cost of living. Now, I'd say that's, that's pretty significant. That's credibility. This is called the constantly rising dividends of the great companies in America and the world. Now, we're talking about uh, some of the challenges in today's world of, um, <laughs> shall we say, minimum yields on fixed income situations. And how does one protect oneself for income uh, into the future? Well, so glad you asked. What we're talking about is the difference between dividends and um interest income and uh, one of the things is is that you know going back to my comment earlier about negative real returns from treasury issues the so-called risk-free uh, investments now risk-free simply means that you'll get your money back at maturity that's what the risk-free factor is okay it's not good or bad I mean that's just what it is but when you look at the fact that because of how interest rates go and inflation rates that you've had phew, 70 years where the U.S. Treasury bill provided, 7-0 that was, 70 years where the U.S. Treasury bills provided negative real returns and uh, 50 years where Treasury bonds did the same thing. That's not good. That's not helpful to your long-term uh, cash flow success. You know, your job as a successful investor is to balance the risk and reward profiles of all the asset classes to create a strategy for yourself that's close to your tolerance for discomfort. Now, when you look at that T-bill, T-bond data, I think you can conclude that risk-free is not only reward-free, but it could be construed as the epitome of risk. The only reason any assets earn a premium over the rate of inflation over time is because owning them involves risk, and sound does not exactly translate into risk-free. So. Let's, at the end of last year, now we're talking about rising dividends. At the end of last year, 423 S&P 500 companies, which is about 84% of the index, actually paid a dividend. So 29, and this is according to Howard Silverblatt, Howard's Sil, uh, senior index analyst at S&P. He said, uh, 2019 dividend payments in the S&P posted their eighth consecutive year of record payments. At this point, the index has already had a 3.3 dividend increase built into 2020. And we have a caller on the line. Good morning. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm investing in an index fund for my Roth IRA for retirement. Yes. Which one do you know? It's the VTSAX. It's a Vanguard fund that tracks the total stock market. Okay. Thank you. So in 2018, I started trying to value cost average with the idea of investing less when the market is high and more when the market is down. Okay. And it worked really well that year. I invested less in the summer and more in Q4 when the market was down. Uh-huh. And it didn't work so well last year because I sat out the um, late-year rally, end-of-year rally, waiting for a pullback. 
Yeah, never came basically. So yeah, yeah exactly. You're right. Yeah. I'm wondering: is value cost averaging a valid strategy, or is it just a fancy version of market timing? No, no. I mean, no. It is not a fancy mer- uh, version of market timing because if you think about it, anybody who has a 401k, 403b, 457 is doing dollar cost averaging every time they make a contribution because they they're putting in money uh every two weeks it's uh, typically the same amount of money that's why they call it defined contribution plan they're putting in the same amount of money every couple of weeks and then the assets into which they're investing are going to be different prices by definition uh, from two weeks prior uh so uh i think i I, I can't ch- quote you chapter and verse, but I've seen enough studies to sh- show to prove to me that dollar cost averaging over time is indeed a viable uh, way to uh, invest and is usually proven pretty profitable. Well, I, didn't, I didn't, sorry to interrupt, Mike. I didn't no, sir. dollar cost average. I value cost average. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. Okay. And invested yeah. more when the market was lower. Yeah. Well, that's right. And that's when the market should. was up based on my balance. Okay, but uh, if you're going to do that, you can't. Yeah. Well, I think it, it net net it's probably the same as long as you stay with the discipline. But that's the key. You can't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing the second guess about well, I'm waiting for the pullback, uh, or I'm waiting for it to top. Uh, neither one can be done by human people. So, you know, stay with your strategy and you'll see results. I think. Okay, just invest consistently. And yeah, absolutely. Stick with your strategy, sir. You, that's obviously done you good. So, you know, <laughs> don't shoot the horse. You're doing okay. All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, Dave. Thanks for your call, sir. And thanks for listening. Uh-huh. Sure. Sure. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. And if you have a question or a comment, 326-9200-800-920-9244 are the numbers that do that. So, as I was saying, uh, the uh, S&P already has a 3.3% dividend increase built into 2020. That doesn't mean it's paying 3.3%. It means that it's already increased by that amount. You've got two lists you can look at, and you can Google these deals, and you can find it out. One's called Dividend Aristocrats. There are 57 companies in the S&P 500 that have increased their dividend payouts for 25 consecutive years or more. Okay. That's why they're called aristocrats. Now, the champions is kind of a variation on a theme, the dividend champions. This is a monthly publication. It tracks all companies listed on all the exchanges in the U.S. So in order for you to get on the list, the annual split-adjusted dividend payout of a company, and that's based on a calendar year, must be consistently increasing. So if you're looking for uh, individual issues uh, that you might want to consider looking at, those would be two great lists from which to start. So currently, the S&P is offering a div- overall on the S&P index, has a dividend of about 1.85%. So you want to look for current yields in your uh, stock positions of, I'd say, about 2.5% or better in order for you to get a little uh, margin of safety. Now, in the past, all that retirement investors ever wanted to focus on, what was the current yield of stocks, in other words, the dividend yield, and what about 15 years ago was the substantially higher yield of bonds? Well, let's go back. In 2010, the S&P 500's dividend was $22.65. Now, 
Why 2010? Well, it was kind of a meaningful baseline because that's when the economy and the stock market really began to take off. Recover, I guess, is the operative term. Um, now, the dividend for last year will be around $58. That's about two and a half times bigger than it was in 2010. Holy camoly. So, you know, everybody always talks about the price of the index, whichever index, and very nearly no one ever talks about the dividend. You see, the the 10-year note at the end of 2010, Treasury note, paid about 3.4%. That's about twice what it is today. And actually, for much of 2019, it had halved that number, while the S&P's dividend ticked relentlessly higher. I'm, I make this gentle suggestion that this aspect, not rising stock prices, is the story of the decade that just ended. Robust dividend growth in a yield-starved world. You know, all, all investments are ultimately made to produce an income. You want income now, income later, income for future generations. The dominant determinant of any investment's capacity to produce an income is its long-term total return. That's growth plus dividends or interest. The analogy I like to use is a well, you know, a, a well, water well. And it, it, especially now in Spokane, there is some snow. So when the snow melts, that water will ultimately find its way into a well. When it rains, that water ultimately finds its way into a well. When you turn on the water for whatever purpose, it doesn't come out in two different colors and say, this one's snow, this one's water or uh, rain. <laughs> You just drink it and take advantage of it. That's what the total income is. It's water. It's your income from all points coming together to provide the income that you need to live. So that's why you need it. You know, that's what income is. It's not just current income. It's a long-term income. Because if you buy a, a stock and, you know, people, oh, yeah, they focus on dividend, excuse me, on, on, on utilities and real estate investment trusts. And they've done very well over the last 10 years because people have been looking for yields. Well, uh, the challenge is, is that that's pretty much all you're going to get uh, in most cases with these high dividend paying stocks. If that's all they get, you have the uh, five, six percent return current annual dividend rate with little or no dividend, uh, stock appreciation. So. And then you look at a, a Microsoft or an Apple. I mean, that's perhaps a little much, but um, they pay low dividends, but their most of their returns are going to be, at least in <laughs> most folks who own them, hoping it's going to be price appreciation. So in neither case will you complain if your income level is going up. So in the real world, we've got 10,000 people retiring every day in this country. Another 10,000 people uh, are hitting 65 every day in this country. And so the issue is income now and for the next three days or so. So the point is that even if interest rates do start to move up, the long-term trend of dividend growth will still still make an income investor wish they had bought good dividend-paying stocks, in my opinion. S&P 500 stockholders received a record number of dividends last year, totaling $126.4 billion. That's a 5.5% increase from the same quarter in 2018, and it's right at the historic average annual growth rate of 6% in annual dividend. And as I said, we've already got 3% priced in. So 
bottom bottom line is is when you're looking at your retirement portfolios your choices in those 401ks 3bs 57s etc at all look for the balanced funds look for the ones that have growth and income not just bond funds because the bond funds aren't going to do you any good in terms of capital appreciation and likely um, overall return after tax after inflation couple closing comments here uh, from Fed Vice Chairman Richard Clarita. He says, I believe that monetary policy is in a good place and should continue to support sustained growth, a strong labor market and inflation running close to the Fed's 2% target. So the big guys seem to think that interest rates are doing okay. And here's a kind of a, I guess, nice to know, a gentleman named Paul Schmilzig. He's a visiting scholar at the Bank of England. I don't know what Paul does for fun, but um, he did a study going back to look at inflation-adjusted interest rates from 1311 to 2018. Uh, Okay, I'm glad he did it. Uh, In any case, he said that over that entire time, so just to put this interest rate stuff in perspective, the average risk-free inflation-adjusted rate has been around 1.3%. So looking for eight, seven eight six whatever percent returns in uh, in bond income is um not uh, something you'd want to be uh, planning on let's put it that way now going back uh to 1900 real 10-year returns in other words every 10 years real 10 years for returns for u.s stocks going back to then has have averaged six and a half percent when 10 years when 10-year returns have been twice that average, four and 10, excuse me, that next 10-year returns fall to just three, when they've been half that average, the forward returns jump to 9.6. Point being that um, you can't really tell based on what last year, what this year is going to be. Now, in the 90s, we had, I think, five years in a row of plus 20%. Okay, so maybe we'll do that again. Stay tuned. So just a few uh, just off the cuff kind of things, you know, diversification means you're always going to have to say you're sorry. The main reason to diversify is to avoid concentrating all your money in one terrible performing asset or sector for a long period. But if you spread your bets, it means that at least part of your portfolio is going to be, uh, if you'll pardon the term, sucking wind while the rest of it moves ahead. You have to accept the occasional strikeout to increase your odds of winning the game. Now, don't forget to rebalance. Diversification only works if you periodically balance your asset allocation. So in essence, this means you look at your, like say, for example, your 401k, 403b, or your own individual portfolio, whatever, it can be taxable or tax-free, it applies in all cases. Look at your holdings in a portfolio and say, okay, which of these, and again, assuming that they're still quality and still like to own them, just because they're down some doesn't mean you want to sell them. Uh, you know, they're just out of favor. So, uh, and the ones that are up, you say, hmm, let's capture some of those gains. And that's what's called rebalancing. You sell from the gain, sell from the high, and buy at the low on the things that haven't moved up yet. Oh, did you did you sell off a bit during the good times to bring them back to their target weights? Well, if you didn't, their losses may have been more painful for you, which make it could make it even harder to buy now but so oh diversify globally you know the global markets have been kind of cratered these last 10 years but uh, the indications that i see around the world say that they're starting to come back and i think that 
Um, typically, when you're doing asset allocation, international shares tend to reduce volatility and help your outcomes just a tad. So keep that in mind. Now, this long business cycle does seem to set to emerge from its third growth slowdown and now reach the stage where a cyclical bull market in commodities can be expected. Um, those also have been down quite a long time. Uh, and I'm not just talking about oil and gold. I'm talking about stuff that we use day to day and uh, those have typically start coming around in the latter part of a uh, recovery now folks this is just kind of a <laughs> i don't know position statement i guess yeah. winners and people of foresight and ambition do monumental things while pessimists watch them from the sidelines making a list of the reasons things won't work out yeah the losers get to win sometimes but their victories tend to be kind of very short-lived as every calamity ultimately leads to opportunity when everything finally settles down. For some reason, though, pessimism is intellectually seductive and the arguments always sound smarter, especially when they dovetail with your own worries. You might think this period is more frightening than the 16-month recession between July 81 and November 82, only because you weren't there. Well, I was, and you haven't studied market history. Your frame of reference is here now, not then. Back then, we had 14% unemployment and 15% inflation. Yay, howdy. <laughs> but from that came the bull market of the 80s and 90s and interest rates dropping. So, yeah. Now, Peter Lynch, probably the best stock picker mutual fund guy in the world, he used to run Fidelity Magellan Fund. He said, at the moment of greatest pessimism back then, when eight out of 10 swore we were heading right back into the 1930s, sound familiar? The stock market rebounded with a vengeance and suddenly all was right with the world. So that's what usually happens. And if you err to one side or the other as a default setting of sorts, in my, uh, well, occasionally humble uh, feeling is that the right way to lean is obvious. Be a be a optimist. That's the only way to go. You know. So let's see here. Ooh, we're coming up close. A couple of things I think is likely going to happen in this year. Just kind of stuff. Your results this year, excuse me, last year are going to affect how you feel about the markets now. It's called recency bias, and so you tend to use your most recent experience as a baseline for what's going to occur into the future, good or bad. Now, when stocks do run into a rough patch, it may feel a lot more comfortable to do something rather than nothing. You know, doing something, anything during big market moves, typically to the lower end, can make investors feel better because it gives them the illusion of control, whether or not those moves are necessary. Uh, when things get hectic, it always feel like the right move to do something because it offers a release valve. Yeah, well, that's the time patience is rewarded more than ever when you're when you'll hear me say, don't do that. So your asset allocation, likely gonna have a bigger impact on your performance and security selection. Studies have shown 91% of your ultimate results are due to asset allocation, about 5% to your individual security selection. So <laughs> concentrate on a good asset allocation that gives you the returns you need over the time you need them, with the least amount of risk you need to get there. That's it. Very simple, very straightforward, except that it's hard. 
The best investment you can make will likely be in increasing your own savings rate. You don't have control over market returns or tax policy or any of that other stuff. But you do control how much you save, I mean, especially if you have a match at a 401k. Oh, my goodness. You have to at least match that for your own benefit. Well, I hope you have a positive, productive week. Break out the snow shovels and go Zags. We'll be back next Saturday with more market stuff. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mayo every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.